couple of years ago, Pastor Mark and I went out to lunch, and as we were getting done, he needed to stop at PetSmart to pick up some stuff for his fish tank at the office. And so I decided to go in there, and I started looking at fish tanks myself. I mean, I'm not like a pet person, but I thought maybe this would be a good time to make a change. So anyway, I was looking around, and I decided to buy this small fish tank with one of those Japanese fighting fish, uh, if you're familiar with those. And so I went in. And I thought it would be this good change. I thought it would add a little more life to my office. And so I get in there, and then Mark kind of tells me all the stuff that I need to buy. I need to get, obviously, the fish bowl. I need to get the little rocks. And then he said I needed to get a little palm tree for the fish bowl because I guess we thought the fish needed to feel like it was at the beach. So we, we got the little palm tree for it. And uh, so then I put it on the – I had my desk. And then back then, I used to have a, the small filing cabinet behind me. So I put the – uh, fish on top of the filing cabinet. So I'm just kind of typing away. I was writing a message, and and so I'm typing away. Every time I look back, I see the little fighting fish there, like looking for a fight, you know. But I wasn't biting. But anyway, so I'd keep typing, and then all of a sudden I hear crack, and I thought, hmm, that's weird. I turn around, I don't see anything. So I just keep typing along, you know, reading some stuff, researching, and next thing you know, I hear another crack. And then I turn around and I see what the problem is, that this, this round fishbowl had this little base. And the, ba- the, the fishbowl was actually cracking right at the base. And as I turned around the second time, I noticed that water was leaking out of the fish tank into all of my files with every message I've ever taught, which is why all the messages that I've taught, when I look at my old notes, they all smell like fish. You might think, like, that's why those messages were a little fishy that I've heard. Um, but anyway, so I, I'm, I'm getting them. So what I do is, is that I say, well, I've got to do something. So I go to pick up the fish tank to then take it somewhere that's not my office. So I go to pick up the fish tank, and it's at that moment that the base and the actual bowl, they decide to not be together anymore, and they separate. And all the water starts rushing into this filing cabinet. That's the moment I started screaming. And I started calling for Mark to come over, and I'm like, I can't believe this guy. I'm blaming it all on him. What did you make me do? I hated animals before. I hate them even more now. Why are you doing this? You know. And I said, you've got to fix this problem. So nonetheless, um, he goes in, and he, the first thing he does in assessing the situation is, uh, David, if you, David is our bass player here in the band, he was in the office that day, and he says, uh, God, he, says he says to David, he says, David, go get a uh, cup with water. So he runs to the to the bathroom to fill this cup up with water. And it's at that moment that Mark does the absolute unthinkable. Because the fish is like on its way now to go into one of my files. You know, like right in the message I do about being a fisher of men. It's like right in there. It's headed. So Mark grabs the fish and puts the fish in his mouth. Now, this is the Japanese fighting fish. And I'm thinking, does he think this is like pre-sushi or something? Well, anyway, so I, at that, like I'm yelling and screaming. And at that moment... I was fro. I mean, I was like water everywhere, and I'm just, what are you doing? And I said to him, "I said, what in the world are you doing?" And then at that moment, that's when David walked in. He takes the fish out of his mouth. He puts it in the in the in the little uh, cup of water, and he says, "Listen, bro, I love animals. I'm trying to give it mouth to mouth resuscitation." Now I don't know if I need to actually finish the story. But needless to say, that fish went to heaven the next day. And um, even though Mark made it his personal responsibility and his personal mission to see that fish and nurse him back to health, 
Um, it just wasn't going to work. And that fish went to heaven, I'm sure, the next day. And I can only imagine the conversation that that fish had with God when it showed up. You know, thinking like, God, why did you allow me to go home with that guy? Like, come on, you know, because you got to think about it from that fish's perspective. That fish, you know, was in great health, living in paradise with all the other fish, all the other animals. They were all having a good time. And then somehow I took possession of it. And that's when things made a turn for the worse in his very short life. Now, here's why I say all of that. I say all of that because if if you've been a Christian for any length of time, even if you're not a Christian and you've had some kind of hardship, tragedy, problem, time period of time in your life when you've had a real difficulty or challenge, you've asked the question, if God is good, then why is there pain and sorrow and suffering and death? I, I mean, can't God just, with the snap of a finger or even less, just cause all of it to stop? And see, that's really the question that I want to spend some time talking about today. Because the answer to that question is the, actually the same answer as to why when I bought that fish, all the problems that entered his life, the very same, the very same reason when it left paradise and entered into my care. You see, the scene that we're going to witness in the book of Revelation, in, in Revelation 5, is God's answer and antidote to all of the pain that we experience in the world today. And this is when we wonder, saying, well, what's God doing? What's God going to do? Revelation 5 is the answer. When He's going to make all the pain stop that started in a garden, when our first parents made, made a decision to rebel against God, now, and, and the ensuing chaos that came from that decision, what we're going to see is just the simple fact of the taking of a scroll, the opening of, of seals, that that is going to trigger a whole series of events that culminates into the problems that we see ultimately being solved. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to see in this whole scene that we're going to look at of this drama of someone taking the scroll, opening it and and all of this. But the first thing that we need to know and as we consider this drama, is that there is, number one, there's a world in need of rescue, if you're taking notes. There's a world in need of rescue. Now, let me kind of illustrate. You say, well, what's the deal with the scroll and why is it so important? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, the third car I ever owned was this 1988 uh, uh, Chevy Cavalier, which I was really excited about having because it was the nicest car I ever owned uh, up until that point. Uh, now, mind you, the car later in its life started having all kinds of problems. The car wouldn't, uh, this is not even a joke, the car would not start, and you can ask my wife about this, it would not start unless I laid hands on it and prayed. I'm not even kidding. Like, if I was in a rush, I would just jump into the car, turn the key. Nothing. I would take the key out of the ignition. I would lay my hands on it, and I'd say, God, you know I need to get to the office. Please let this car start in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Get in the car. I'm telling you, didn't matter. Get in the car when I'm at the office. I'm going to get a sandwich. Dear God, you know I'm hungry. Please help the car start. I'm telling you, the car started on command when you prayed over the car. Well, now mind you, the car had some problems later. You know, like I said, it only started with prayer. It was also infested with cockroaches, but that's a story for another time. Um, Now, one day, Carrie and I are driving in this car, and she decides to open up my glove box to look for something. And as she's looking, she finds, uh, she pulls out the title to the car. And she says to me, she says, you know, what's this? And I'm thinking like, okay, I've got to really explain this. And I'm like, okay, honey, um, I know that this car isn't much. I know this car only starts when it prays. It's like a little prayer mobile that we have. I know that this car is also infested with roaches. It isn't much, but it's ours. And she says to me, not for long. I said, what do you mean? She says, don't you see that you've got the title in your glove box? That if anybody actually like gets into this car and takes the, the, the title and signs it, it's their car now. And, and you, you, ever, you ever have those moments where someone says something to you and you're like, you know, I probably should have known that. This is like one of those moments in my life. And, I, I, you know, you try to come up with something and you're just like, you got nothing. And you're like, yeah, you're right. That, that, was, that was pretty much it. Now, why do I, t- why do I tell you that, that silly story? And it's simply this. Because the scroll that's being talked about is the title deed to planet Earth. Now, this isn't just like this something that for dramatic effect. This is a very real thing that's going to trigger the rest of the book of Revelation that culminates in the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. When God created the heavens and the earth, He created the animals, He created birds, He created everything that's in the sea, He created man. And what He did was that He gave... Man, charge over the earth. He said to be fruitful and multiply, to tend the earth, take care of the earth. By the way, a lot of people think that Adam had nothing to do. Adam had a job. His job was to take care of the earth. And so what happens is is that it's essentially like God was handing him the title deed. It's your planet. Don't mess it up. But then here's what happens. As you know, the book of Genesis teaches us in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind fell into sin. Mankind sinned. And you know what happened when mankind sinned? It wasn't just like, hey, they just messed up. Their relationship with God was severed. There was much more than that. It was much more than just their relationship with God. It was the relationship between God and this planet that the Bible even tells us this in Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is groaning for God to set things straight. So it's not just like, well, you know, just kind of, well, it's kind of weird what happened with Adam and with Eve. No, no, no. There's something that happened that was even much bigger than them. That they, representative of the human race, when they fell into sin and Satan duped them into like the worst deal ever, they essentially took the title deed to planet Earth and handed it over to the serpent. And now, this is why that this is important. And by the, what, by the way, what did they get? What did they trade the title deed to planet Earth for? A piece of fruit. I mean, you want to talk about a lemon of a deal. I mean, that's one right there. A piece of fruit. And since that time, listen, this world that you and I live in has been under the control of the serpent. Under the control, whatever you want to call him, the serpent, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, that's the person who's been in charge. You say, well, why is all the crazy stuff happening in the world? It's because it's his world in which we're living in. Now, you might think, like, hold on, that that can't be right. 
God created it, gave it to Adam. Adam forfeits it, forks it over for a piece of fruit. Is that, is that exactly what went down? Listen, that's exactly what went down. In the book of 1 John, this is how John writes it in chapter 5. He says, we know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You see, that's because the world that we live in is being ruled by the enemy. And the thing, the reason that's, that's why there's pain, there's death, there's disease, there's suffering. It's his world now. Now here's the thing, now think about this. Because how could, if the, the world is the way God intended it, for there to be all of these things that really don't represent who, who, who God is. In John chapter 10 verse 10 it says this, that Jesus came to give us life and that abundantly. But here's what it says just prior to that. It says that the enemy, that Satan, the devil, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And isn't that exactly what's taking place in our world? And that's why so many times we look on and we say, well, what's God doing? Well, remember, remember what's happening here. Remember the transaction that's taken place. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? It's also found in the Gospel of Luke as well. Um, but remember he says to, say, to, to Satan says to Jesus after he's been fasting, hey, why don't you take those stones and turn them into bread? And Jesus says no. And then he takes them to the pinnacle of the temple, the very top part of the temple, about 450 feet high. And he says to Jesus, he says, why don't you throw yourself off? And then the angels, because the Bible says in Psalm 91 that he will give his angels charge over you, that they'll, you know, scoop you up in like a Cirque du Soleil kind of fashion. And then you'll be safe and everything will be fine. And then Jesus says, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to go ahead and not do that. But then if you remember, it says that he took him to a place and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And in fact, let me read it to you. He says this. He says, again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, friends, the, G, Satan offered it up because it was his to offer because of Adam's sin, he turned over the title deed to planet Earth. And that's why he says, listen, I can turn over the title deed to whoever I want if you'll bow down and worship me. Now, here's what I think is so interesting and what's so important is because, I mean, think about this. What do we call hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, natural disasters? Check it out. We call them acts of God. I mean, really? Is that the name we're going to really go with? Like we're going to let God take the blame for all this stuff that happens because, one, because we're living in a fallen world that wasn't his intention. But instead what happens is, and so we're going to go, it could be called acts of the fall of man, acts of the devil. But instead we're going to go with acts of God. Are we, are we sure? We're going to attribute that to him? Now the thing that's really important is that, think about this. What do we do? This is where it really kind of becomes a little more personal. I mean, what do we do when things get a little, you know, we kind of make a tornado of bad decisions in our lives. When there's this flood of just going in the wrong direction, what do we do? I mean, you know, it's like I'm going to, you're going to start dating somebody, but the guy's not a Christian. And then you say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And here's what happens. Then the relationship explodes. And then we say this, we say, oh God, why did you allow this to happen? Or we, get, we can't afford the house, we decide to get into the house, and then the inevitable happens, because that's the whole point of inevitability. It happens, and so we end up losing the house, and then what do we say? We say, God, 
why did you allow this to happen? Why don't you provide for me? And then what we're doing is, I mean, who are we acting like when we make the flood of bad decisions and then we call them acts of God? You see, John looks on in heaven and he sees that the scroll and he says, no one is worthy to take the scroll. And the Bible says that he begins to weep. And that doesn't mean like he sheds one tear, you know, in like this dramatic movie, you know, Hollywood kind of thing. No, what that means in the original language is he starts sobbing like he's like he's convulsing. He's crying so much. And why? Because he realizes that if no one is worthy, then things are going to stay absolutely the same. And for things to really change, that someone is going to have to be worthy to open the scroll. Someone's going to have to be worthy to, to read the scroll. You see, in that culture, when something was, when there was a title deed, it would be, there would be a scroll. But it, what would happen is, is that it would be sealed with seals. But on the outside of the scroll would be written the requirements to be able to open the seal. And then, so if it's sealed with seven seals, there would be several different requirements that would happen. And so this is the thing that takes place, is that the person would look at it and say, am I worthy? Do I have what it takes to be able to open this scroll and loose the seals? You see, here's what happens in our world. In our world, people are giving away the title deed to their lives to things that cannot satisfy. We give the title deed of our lives to things like drugs, to things like alcohol, to things like sex, to things like hobbies or relationships or money. All these things that cannot satisfy, all of these things that, that we're hoping at times will be worthy to, to change the situation that we find ourselves in. Why? Because we have this understanding that we're hoping that if they will take ownership of us, that it will change things. But see, anything less than God who created you. That we can, if we take the title deed to our lives and we hand it to someone other than God, listen, these things that we hand it to, listen, they aren't worthy of you. They aren't worthy of you. They aren't enough. They just, they just can't do it. And that's why so many of us find ourselves frustrated in life because, listen, we're going through life like my fish. You know, I mean, someone took ownership that just couldn't deliver. And that's where many of us find ourselves today. I mean, so what does a person do in this place? It, it, maybe you're here and you're in that place. Like, man, I've taken the title deed and I handed it to this and it didn't work. And I handed it to this and it didn't work. And I handed it to this and it didn't work. And I handed it to this and it didn't work. It's like, what do I do now? And now I feel like I'm like a, I'm, I'm like a, just pieces of myself. I mean, what do I do at this point? Well, this is what happens in verse 5. This is where we move on. Here's what he says. We're going to read just verse 5. And he says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And if you pause there and give me your attention, if, if the first point is that there's a world in need of rescue, the second is, is that there's a Savior who is worthy. There's a Savior who's worthy. Now, to understand this idea of, of being worthy, I need to tell you a story uh, that comes to us from uh, Hebrew history. Um, that when the children of Israel came into the land, the, the, the land we call Israel, the land of promise, they weren't allowed, every tribe was given an allotment. Every tribe was given a piece of land. 
So what that meant was, is that that land was given to them by God. But God says this very specifically. It's not your land. It's mine. And so that, because it's my land, God would say, you can't just go out right and sell it. Because I want all the tribes to have the land that I have doled out for them. So that meant that land in that, in, in that time could not be sold permanently. So what they would do is, um, every 50 years, there was this thing that was called the Jubilee year. And at, at the Jew, this is like this awesome thing. I mean, I wish we did this. Um, every 50 years, there would be this thing that all debts would be canceled. And um, if you had sold something, it would come back to your possession uh, during, during the Jubilee. And that's why what you would do when you would sell something, or basically it was like leasing, um, it was always in relative time to how, when the next Jubilee was. So if Jubilee is next year, then you're not going to be able to get very much for this thing that you're selling. If Jubilee isn't for another 49 years, now you're able to get a lot more for it because the person that's buying is going to have use for it for 49 years until it eventually comes back to you. On, on the year of Jubilee. Now, I just think that would be an awesome thing. Plus, on the Jubilee year, you got the year off, which that's what I'm talking about. Uh, but gee, could you imagine, like, you know, getting like a check back in the mail from your mortgage company and them saying, hey, listen, stop paying. It's Jubilee. It's paid up. It, it's, you're, 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 you're done. Are you sure? Yes, you're done. I mean, apparently the stimulus package worked. You know, I mean, this is amazing. Uh, you know, so, sorry. Um, so this whole thing... Uh, so, so, but now, now mind you, here's the thing. What if you sold your land and now you're in a big pickle because it's 40 years, let's say, until the next Jubilee and you, and you want to have your land back, but you, you sold it or in our case, we consider at least it until the next Jubilee. What would you do? You see, someone that was related to you would ha- that was worthy would have to step in on your behalf and be your goel. That's a Hebrew word, G-O-E-L. And what it means is, the word goel is a word that means redeemer or family redeemer. And what that person would do is, well, let me read it to you from the book of Leviticus. Here's what it says. This is is the law that God gives. He says, with every sale of land, there must be a stipulation that the land can be redeemed at any time. If any of your Israelite relatives go bankrupt and are forced to sell some inherited land, then a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, Goel, may buy it back for them. If there is no one to redeem the land, but the person who sold it manages to get enough money to buy it back, then the person has the right to buy it back from the one who bought it. The price of the land will be based on the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. After buying it back, the original owner may return to the land, but if the original owner cannot afford it to redeem it, It'll belong to the next owner until the year of Jubilee. In the, year of, in the Jubilee year, the land will return to the original owner. So the idea is this. But see, not just anybody. You couldn't just have your next door neighbor come and redeem your land for you. It had to be someone who was worthy. It had to be someone who was related to you, who could step in, who could say, I'm willing to step in on your behalf and be your Goel, to be your family redeemer, your kinsman redeemer. Because the person had to be not only worthy, and that is able to, to take care of the debt, but he also had to be willing. You couldn't force someone to be the kinsman redeemer. You had to, the person had to come from them. They had to be willing to do it. Now let me explain it this way. Um, I, I, this week I was at a conference uh, in Orlando for a couple of days. And um, you know like you go to most conferences and they give you this bag. And in this bag is a bunch of junk. 
Um, but there's the, the conference book, and that's really the thing that's bo- important is they give you this book that tells you like when the sessions are, where you're supposed to be at what time. And I looked in my book uh, or looked in my bag and I actually I got all the junk, but I didn't get the one thing that was important, which was the, the conference notebook. So uh, I was sitting at this workshop that a friend of mine was going to be teaching. And so I'm sitting at the table and I'm realizing that I don't have it. So I turned to the guy next to me that looks totally uninterested um, and, and I said, hey, do you know, uh, do you have a conference notebook that I can look at? And the guy is like eating all these snacks, you know, I mean, he's got like this bunch of snacks in front of him. And, and he says, uh, well, the, underneath here, underneath this table, funny enough, there's a whole box of them. And I'm like, well, do you mind getting me one? Because they're like right now, you know, he's like kicking them with his feet. And I'm like, instead of me like going all the way around this table, can you just grab one for me and hand it to me? And he's like, oh, fine. And I'm like, oh, thanks. God bless you, brother. And um, so he reaches down, he grabs one of the conference notebooks, and he hands it to me. And I guess I wasn't really paying attention, but I grab it, and check this. The guy hands me this notebook, but the guy's been eating like an entire huge bag of Doritos. And the, the conference notebook that he gives me has five humongous orange Dorito cheesy flavor stains all over them. And he hands them to me, and I'm like... Thanks? What do I say to that? You know, I'm like, do you have like a scraper so I can enjoy the Doritos? I don't even know what to say. And now I'm in this weird position because I'm like, do I, do I keep the Dorito notebook? Or do I go over? If I go over and get my own, he's going to say, why didn't you do that in the first place? And I'm like, well, I didn't know you were going to give me nacho freshness with my thing. And so I'm like, I'm in this weird spot. And so, now mind you, here's the thing, that even though he was able to do it, he wasn't really willing to do it. And he did it just kind of out of compulsion. Now, listen, when it comes to Jesus, he wasn't just only, he wasn't only worthy. Listen, he was willing to be our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. You see, you want to think about why Jesus became human. I mean, couldn't just God have just forgiven us? Right? Jesus in heaven, instead of going through like the whole trouble of becoming human, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. Couldn't he have just said, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and call it even. But instead, here's what he does. He becomes one of us. Why? Because he's seeking to be the Goel. He's seeking to be the family redeemer. You see, in in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. It says, for we know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You see, he's not just worthy. He's not just the family redeemer that has the ability to, but he's willing to do it. You see, here's the idea of worthy and willing and why this is so important in your life and in mine. I I talk to lots of people who pray are praying about God's will. I mean, that's like a hot button topic, right? I just want to know God's will for my life. But see, they want to know what God wants them to do. But here's the problem. They're not really all that willing to do what God is telling them to do. And that's why it's causing problems, because we say, well, I want to know what God wants me to do. Are you going to do it? I don't know. Let's hear what he has to say, and then I'll decide. Not the way God works. God wants us to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, the answer is already yes. That's the person that God will speak to. That's the person that God will be very clear to. You see, Jesus said these words as far as someone who's worthy and willing. 
He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the question is, if God revealed his will to you, would you do it? Or would you say, no, 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 my, God, my will be done. In fact, here's what I'd like even better. I'm going to tell you what I want, and let's just go ahead and make that your will. Because that would work out even better. And see, that's the problem. See, a lot of us say, but you don't understand, I love God. I'd die for Jesus if I had to. I understand that, but are we willing to live for Him? That seems to be a little bit harder. You see, the challenge for us is, and this is what I think why sometimes God doesn't speak to us at times, is because there's stuff that God has already told us to do, that God has plainly laid out, and we're still kind of struggling as to whether we're going to do it or not. You see, God's already spoken about this whole idea of like, are you going to be pure sexually until you get married? Like, well, I don't know, maybe. No, 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 God's already talked about that. He's already laid that out in the Bible. You know, what are you going to do with your money? God's already talked about that. What are you going to do with your gifts and talents and serving God with the gifts that He's given you? God's already talked about that. But see, the question is, is that, I mean, if we're not already sure, if we're not already doing what we're sure God has told us to do, we're going to have a tough time hearing Him in the other areas of life that we're not so sure. You see, it all comes down to this idea of the title deed. It all comes down to the idea of saying, God, have I given you the title deed? Because if God has the title, once again, like the story I told you, then God is the owner. And if I've given Jesus Christ my life when I came to Him, then I'm no longer the owner. He is. And see, that changes everything. The whole game changes when you recognize that maybe I'm not the owner. If I've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I've asked Him to forgive me and I've given Him my life, now He's the one that's holding the title deed. And if my life is really His, then when He lays out the plan, I obey. You see, if I hang on to the title deed and I ask God what, what I should do, then it, now it still becomes, well, I'm just going to take it under advisement. Instead, and I'm telling you, that this is the struggle when we think about, well, there's stuff that, there's the stuff I already know to do, and then I'm like, well, you know, should I, shouldn't I? It's kind of like what my daughter does. My daughter, when it's bedtime, she knows. That's like God's will is for her to go to sleep at, at a certain time. And then we, we lay her down, and then she's got all these excuses as to why she can't go to sleep. She's two, and she's a master of excuses. And it's like we lay her down and we say, Mama, we love you. We pray with her. And then we, we, uh, we, we, we give her hugs and kisses. We talk about her day. She had a great time. And then we lay her down to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, she says, Mommy, hambre. Papi, water. And then she says, Mommy, hurt. Apparently, she just developed a pain right then. Every night at the same time, she develops a pain. And then she's like, no, no, no. And then she starts asking for certain toys. She's like, no. She has this doll that she calls little baby. Little baby, hug. She has to give little baby a hug. She has to give, you know, Mickey Mouse a kiss. You know, all this stuff that has to go on. Listen, and it's like, we, we can do this all night. At some point, it's like, I'm going to just take what God gives me and say, listen, this is what God wants me to do. Or I just keep kind of making then, then excuses. And, 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 and this is what becomes the problem. If I keep stalling on the stuff that God has already said yes, yes about, it's going to be impossible for me to hear him on the stuff that I didn't, that, that I'm not really totally sure yet. You see, the person who's willing to obey and that says, I, I'm doing and I'm seeking to do everything that, that God has already said, I'm going to do that. That person hears God much clearer than the one who doesn't. 
Well, here's what happens. This is kind of the, the culmination of the story in verse 5. Or pardon me, in verse 6. He says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then I came and I took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. If you pause there, this is one of the big problems that people have with Revelation. They say, you see a lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes. What does that even mean? What does an eye speak of? Vision. The the, the number seven in the Bible always speaks of completion, perfection. So something with seven eyes has perfect vision, perfect perception. Horns speak of authority. And throughout the Bible, God uses this metaphor of the horn speaking of authority. So a lamb having seven horns speaks of full and complete authority. This complete authority having complete and perfect vision as to what needs to take place. Now here's what happens is that um, as, as we go through this now, there's a world in need of rescue, there's a savior that's worthy, but number three is there's a lion who is a lamb. Because here's what takes place is that, hold on, didn't, wasn't John crying and then he turns and, and they tell him, well, the, don't, you know, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's prevailed, he's worthy, he's able to open the scroll and loose the seals. And then he turns and he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. Well, that, what's that all about? You see, he is the lion. Jesus, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but at the same time, he's a lamb who was slain. When John the Baptist saw Jesus as he was entering his ministry in John chapter 1, it says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a picture, it's, it's a picture of, uh, of temple life in Jerusalem, of, of, of Jewish uh, religious life. The Lamb represented the one who would be offered for the sake of forgiveness coming to a family or to a nation. So John sees a Lamb slain. Jesus, who was the lion who humbled himself to become a lamb and lay down his life for you and for me. In the book of Philippians, it speaks of this. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and be became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, we've seen a couple of things. We've seen someone needing to be worthy. We've seen someone needing to be willing. But when someone is worthy and is willing, that's when we see something amazing happen in a person's life. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Like in 1 Samuel 17, like David fighting Goliath. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that story? You've got this little guy named, named David. I mean, um, in Israel at that time, even at this time, the average height is about five foot four, five foot five. And then he shows up, this giant that's nine feet tall, a little over nine feet tall. And so, I mean, this is the kind of guy that, you know, Goliath that looks at Shaq and says, what's up, tiny? You know, and, and so all, every single soldier in Israel is like cowering for their lives. And David shows up. And you know what the Bible says? I love this. How, how he even shows up that day, his dad, Jesse, says to David, here, can you bring some cheese to your brothers? He's delivering cheese. 
He's the cheese guy. He shows up with some Swiss, some mozzarella, and he's like, guys, what's up? And they're like, check out that big dude. And he's like, I've got brie. I've got blue cheese. You know what I mean? I've got all kinds of cheese. I've got cheese whiz. I mean, what kind do you want? My, your dad, our dad brought a bunch of stuff. But he's able to go into this valley of Elah, which I've had the privilege of standing in. And, 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 he, and he says this. And, and he looks on and he says, I mean, come on. You? Nine foot nine? You're nothing. Why? Because he recognizes the one that he serves. And he says, because I'm, 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 I'm worthy because I'm willing. You know, and, and here's what David realizes that makes him worthy. And this is what's so important for us. David didn't just go into the Valley of Elah. And it's this whole idea of courage. And, and you may have heard me say this in the past, but courage is not something that's built in a day. It's something that's built every day. David says to Saul before he goes into the Valley of Elah, he says this. He says, don't you understand that when I've been watching my father's flock, that the, 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 the lion came and the bear came and I, and I killed them, protecting the flock. And this giant Goliath will be just like one of them. Worthy and willing. In the book of First Kings chapter, uh, chapter 18, there's this incredible story of the prophet Elijah. You want to talk about a wild guy. I mean, this guy is like the kind of guy you want to hang out with. Uh, just this totally wild prophet. And he decides that he's going to have like a showdown of the gods. And here's what he does. He says, how about, you know, my God is tougher than your God. He tells the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, how about this? Let's make it an even fight. Let's show up at Mount Carmel, which is a mountain there in Israel. And he says, all 450 of you versus me. That seems even. And then he says, all right, and whoever's God answers by fire, he'll be the God that we worship. And they're like, oh, yeah. Because Baal, this God, was the God of lightning, thunder, fire. I mean, this is like their deal. So he's making it real easy for them. And then here's what happens. They start cutting themselves. They start crying out. The Bible says that from the morning until the evening, they're calling out. Well, after a few hours that nothing happens, Elijah starts making fun of them. And he's like, hey, where's your God? He says, oh, I know. Maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe that's the problem. He just can't be reached. You know, it's, I mean, 3G network is good, but it's not that great. You know, I mean, it's just like he's, he's just out of the zone. And then he says this, and this is like my favorite one. He says, maybe your God is relieving himself. That's a Bible way of saying maybe your God is peeing, and that's why he can't hear you. You know, maybe your God's got the runs. That's maybe the problem. And so he says all of this. And then after they've cut themselves, they've hacked themselves up, they're calling out to their God and nothing happens. He tells these 450 prophets, why don't you step back and watch how it's done? And he tells his servants, he says, I want you to pour water on the sacrifice. And then he tells them, I want you to pour water again. Seven times he tells them to pour water on the sacrifice. And then he just steps back, he kneels down and he prays and he says, God, show them who you are. And the Bible just says that fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar around it. I mean, just ablaze. And here's the only thing that these 450 prophets could say. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Oh my goodness, the Lord. He's the one who's really God. How, how can He do that? How does a guy like Elijah do that? Right? I mean, 450 to 1? I mean, that's a total mismatch. And he walks in and he says, listen, this is going to be no different 
than the other times that I've stood in, in, in front of people. No other different than the times that I've stood as a prophet of God. It's going to be no different. So now the stakes are a little higher because not only am I worthy now, it's God who makes me worthy and it's God who, who now allows my willingness to show through. And the Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not out of the letter, but out of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Can I just tell you something? It's the last verse in your outline. It says this. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. Now, here's the, tr- the truth is we don't believe that. It's in the Bible. Maybe we have that memorized. We don't really believe that. Because if someone showed up 450 to 1 odds, we would run. But I just want to tell you, what would happen... What would happen if we realized that the sufficiency is not in us? The reason we would run from the 450 to 1 odds is because we think the sufficiency is in us. But what would happen if we realized that it has nothing to do with me being worthy? It has everything to do with the Lamb who is worthy, because that's what the next section talks about. They just talked about holy is the Lamb, the one who's able to open the scrolls to loose the seals. He's the one who's worthy. And all that God is looking for is someone who is willing. And if that person who is willing would step out, amazing things would happen in this world. Amazing things would happen in your marriage if you were willing and realized that God was the one who was worthy. Amazing things would happen in your career if you realized that you're just willing, but God is the one who's worthy. Amazing things would happen in your relationship with God. Everything would change if you realized that He's the one who's worthy, but all He's looking for right now is somebody who is willing. Willing to do what? Willing to take the title deed and say, God, it's yours. And now I take my life and I just say, God, what do you want me to do? And we're going to do it. Not because I'm good enough, I'm great enough, I'm smart enough, but because, God, you're the one who's worthy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that truth, that you are the one who's worthy. And God, what we simply seek to be is people who are willing to obey you, to follow you, to know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Help us, God, to be the people you've called us to be, to follow you, to obey you, to draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.